This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of the Horla by Guy de Montpassant from LibriVox, and it's read for us by Greg Marguerite. Listen to the discussion of it that follows. This is a LibriVox recording. Reading by Greg Marguerite. The Horla by Guy de Maupassant. May 8th. What a lovely day. I have spent all the morning lying in the grass in front of my house, under the enormous plantain tree which covers it and shades and shelters the whole of it. I like this part of the country, and I am fond of living here because I am attached to it by deep roots, profound and delicate roots which attach a man to the soil on which his ancestors were born and died, which attach him to what people think and what they eat, to the usages as well as to the food, local expression, the peculiar language of the peasants, to the smell of the soil, of the villages, and of the atmosphere itself. I love my house in which I grew up. From my windows I can see the Seine which flows by the side of my garden. On the other side of the road, almost through my grounds, the great and wide Seine which goes to Rouen and Havre, and which is covered with boats passing to and fro. On the left, down yonder, lies Rouen, that large town with its blue roofs under its pointed Gothic towers. They are innumerable, delicate or broad, dominated by the spire of the cathedral and full of bells, which sound through the blue air on fine mornings, sending their sweet and distant iron clang to me, their metallic sound which the breeze wafts in my direction, now stronger and now weaker, according as the wind is strong or lighter. What a delicious morning it was! About eleven o'clock a long line of boats drawn by a steam-tug as big as a fly, and which scarcely puffed while emitting its thick smoke, passed my gate. After two English schooners whose red flag fluttered towards the sky, there came a magnificent Brazilian three-master. It was perfectly white and wonderfully clean and shining. I saluted it. I hardly know why, except that the sight of the vessel gave me great pleasure. May 12th. I have had a slight feverish attack for the last few days, and I feel ill, or rather I feel low-spirited. Whence do these mysterious influences come, which change our happiness into discouragement and our self-confidence into diffidence? One might almost say that the air, the invisible air, is full of unknowable forces, whose mysterious presence we have to endure. I wake up in the best spirits, with an inclination to sing in my throat. Why? I go down by the side of the water, and suddenly, after walking a short distance, I return home wretched, as if some misfortune were awaiting me there. Why? Is it a cold shiver which, passing over my skin, has upset my nerves and given me low spirits? Is it the form of the clouds, or the color of the sky, or the color of the surrounding objects, which is so changeable, which have troubled my thoughts as they passed before my eyes? Who can tell? Everything that surrounds us, everything that we see without looking at, everything that we touch without knowing it, everything that we handle without feeling it, all that we meet without clearly distinguishing it, has a rapid, surprising, and inexplicable effect upon us and our organs, and through them on our ideas and on our heart itself. How profound that mystery of the invisible is! 
We cannot fathom it with our miserable senses, with our eyes which are unable to perceive what is either too small or too great, too near to or too far from us, neither the inhabitants of a star nor of a drop of water, with our ears that deceive us, for they transmit to us the vibrations of the air in sonorous notes. They are fairies who work the miracle of changing that movement into noise, and by that metamorphosis give birth to music, which makes the mute agitation of nature musical. With our sense of smell, which is smaller than that of a dog, with our sense of taste, which can scarcely distinguish the age of a wine, oh, if we only had other organs which would work other miracles in our favor, what a number of fresh things we might discover around us! May 16th I am ill, decidedly. I was so well last month. I am feverish, horribly feverish, or rather I am in a state of feverish enervation which makes my mind suffer as much as my body. I have without ceasing that horrible sensation of some danger threatening me, that apprehension of some coming misfortune or of approaching death, that presentiment which is no doubt an attack of some illness which is still unknown, which germinates in the flesh and in the blood. May 18th. I have just come from consulting my medical man, for I could no longer get any sleep. He found that my pulse was high, my eyes dilated, my nerves highly strung, but no alarming symptoms. I must have a course of shower-baths and of bromide of potassium. May 25th. No change. My state is really very peculiar. As the evening comes on, an incomprehensible feeling of disquietude seizes me, just as if night concealed some terrible menace toward me. I, I dine quickly, and then try to read, but I do not understand the words, and can scarcely distinguish the letters. Then I walk up and down my drawing-room, oppressed by a feeling of confused and irresistible fear, the fear of sleep, and fear of my bed. About ten o'clock I go up to my room. As soon as I have got in, I double-lock and bolt it. I am frightened. Of what? Up till the present time I have been frightened of nothing. I open my cupboards and look under my bed. I listen. I listen. To what? How strange it is that a simple feeling of discomfort impede or heightened circulation, perhaps the irritation of a nervous thread, a slight congestion, a small disturbance in the imperfect and delicate functions of our living machinery, can turn the most light-hearted of men into a melancholy one, and make a coward of the bravest. Then I go to bed, and I wait for sleep as a man might wait for the executioner. I wait for its coming with dread, and my heart beats and my legs tremble, while my whole body shivers beneath the warmth of the bedclothes, until the moment when I suddenly fall asleep, as one would throw oneself into a pool of stagnant water in order to drown oneself. I do not feel it coming over me as I used to do formerly. This perfidious sleep, which is close to me and watching me, which is going to seize me by the head, to close my eyes and annihilate me. I sleep. A, a long time. Two or three hours, perhaps. Then a dream. No, a, a nightmare lays hold of me. I feel that I am in bed and asleep. I feel it, and I know it. And I feel also that somebody is coming close to me, is looking at me, touching me, is getting onto my bed, is kneeling on my chest, is taking my neck between his hands and squeezing it, squeezing it with all his might in order to strangle me. I struggle, bound by that terrible powerlessness which paralyzes us in our dreams. I try to cry out, but I cannot. I want to move. I cannot. I try, with the most violent effort and out of breath, to turn over and throw off this being which is crushing and suffocating me. 
I can not. And then, suddenly, I wake up, shaken and bathed in perspiration. I light a candle and find that I am alone, and after that crisis which occurs every night, I at length fall asleep and slumber tranquilly till morning. June 2nd. My state has grown worse. What is the matter with me? The bromide does me no good, and the shower-baths have no effect whatever. Sometimes, in order to tire myself out, though I am fatigued enough already, I go for a walk in the forest of Rue Marie. I used to think at first that the fresh light and soft air, impregnated with the odor of herbs and leaves, would instill new blood into my veins and impart fresh energy to my heart. I turned into a broad ride in the wood, and then I turned toward La Bouya, through a narrow path between two rows of exceedingly tall trees which placed a thick, green, almost black roof between the sky and me. A sudden shiver ran through me, not a cold shiver, but a shiver of agony, and so I hastened my steps, uneasy at being alone in the wood, frightened stupidly and without reason, at the profound solitude. Suddenly it seemed to me as if I were being followed, that somebody was walking at my heels, close, quite close to me, near enough to touch me. I turned round suddenly, but I was alone. I saw nothing behind me except the straight, broad ride, empty and bordered by high trees, horribly empty. On the other side it also extended until it was lost in the distance and looked just the same. Terrible. I closed my eyes. Why? and then I began to turn round on one heel very quickly, just like a top. I nearly fell down and opened my eyes. The trees were dancing round me and the earth heaved. I was obliged to sit down. Then, ah, I no longer remembered how I had come. What a strange idea! What a strange, strange idea! I did not the least know. I started off to the right and got back into the avenue which had led me into the middle of the forest. June 3rd. I have had a terrible night. I shall go away for a few weeks, for no doubt a journey will set me up again. July 2nd. I have come back quite cured, and have had a most delightful trip into the bargain. I have been to Mont-Saint-Michel, which I had not seen before. What a sight, when one arrives as I did at Alvranche toward the end of the day. The town stands on a hill, and I was taken into the public garden at the extremity of the town. I uttered a cry of astonishment. An extraordinary large bay lay extended before me as far as my eyes could reach between two hills which were lost to sight in the mist, and in the middle of this immense yellow bay, under a clear golden sky, a peculiar hill rose up, somber, and pointed in the midst of the sand. The sun had just disappeared, and under the still flaming sky the outline of that fantastic rock stood out, which bears on its summit a fantastic monument. At daybreak I went to it. The tide was low, as it had been the night before, and I saw that wonderful abbey rise up before me as I approached it. After several hours' walking I reached the enormous mass of rocks which supports the little town, dominated by the great church. Having climbed the steep and narrow street I entered the most wonderful Gothic building that has ever been built to God on earth, as large as a town full of low rooms which seemed buried beneath vaulted roofs and lofty galleries supported by delicate columns. I entered this gigantic granite jewel which is as light as a bit of lace, covered with towers, with slender belfries to which spiral staircases ascend, and which raise their strange heads that bristle with chimera, 
with devils, with fantastic animals, with monstrous flowers, and which are joined together by finely carved arches to the blue sky by day, and to the black sky by night. When I had reached the summit, I said to the monk who accompanied me, Father, how happy you must be here! And he replied, It is very windy, monsieur. And so we began to talk while watching the rising tide, which ran over the sand and covered it with a steel carass. And then the monk told me stories, all the old stories belonging to the place, legends, nothing but legends. One of them struck me forcibly. The country people, those belonging to the Mornay, declared that at night one can hear talking going on in the sand, and then that one hears two goats bleat, one with a strong, the other with a weak voice. Incredulous people declare that it is nothing but the cry of the sea-birds which occasionally resembles bleatings and occasionally human lamentations. But belated fishermen swear that they have met an old shepherd whose head, which is covered by his cloak, they can never see, wandering on the downs between two tides round the little town placed so far out of the world, and who is guiding and walking before them a he-goat with a man's face and a she-goat with a woman's face and both of them with white hair, and talking incessantly, quarreling in a strange language, and then suddenly ceasing to talk in order to bleat with all their might. "'Do you believe it?' I asked the monk. "'I scarcely know,' he replied, and I continued, "'If there are other beings besides ourselves on this earth, how come it is that we have not known it for so long a time? Or why have you not seen them? How is it that I have not seen them?' He replied, Do we see the hundred-thousandth part of what exists? Look here. There is the wind, which is the strongest force in nature, which knocks down men and blows down buildings, uproots trees, raises the sea into mountains of water, destroys cliffs, and casts great ships into the breakers. The wind which kills, which whistles, which sighs, which roars. Have you ever seen it? And can you see it? It exists for all that, however. I was silent before this simple reasoning. The man was a philosopher, or perhaps a fool, I could not say which exactly, so I held my tongue. What he had said had often been in my own thoughts. July 3rd. I have slept badly. Certainly there is some feverish influence here, for my coachman is suffering in the same way as I am. When I went back home yesterday I noticed his singular paleness, and I asked him, What is the matter with you, Jean? The matter is that I never get any rest, and my nights devour my days. Since your departure, monsieur, there has been a spell over me. However, the other servants are well, but I am very frightened of having another attack myself. July 4th. I am decidedly taken again, for my old nightmares have returned. Last night I felt somebody leaning on me who was sucking my life from between my lips with his mouth. Yes, he was sucking it out of my neck like a leech would have done. Then he got up, satiated, and I woke up, so beaten, crushed, and annihilated that I could not move. If this continues for a few days, I shall certainly go away again. July 5th. Have I lost my reason? What has happened? What I saw last night is so strange that my head wanders when I think of it. As I do now, every evening I had locked my door, and then, being thirsty, I drank half a glass of water, and I accidentally noticed that the water bottle was full up to the cut glass stopper. Then I went to bed and fell into one of my terrible sleeps, from which I was aroused in about two hours by a still more terrible shock. Picture to yourself a sleeping man who is being murdered, and who wakes up with a knife in his chest, and who is rattling in his throat 
covered with blood and who can no longer breathe and is going to die and does not understand anything at all about it. There it is. Having recovered my senses, I was thirsty again, so I lit a candle and went to the table on which my water bottle was. I lifted it up and tilted it over my glass, but nothing came out. It was empty. It was completely empty. At first I could not understand it at all, and then suddenly I was seized by such a terrible feeling that I had to sit down, or rather I fell into a chair. Then I sprang up with a bound to look about me, and then I sat down again, overcome by astonishment and fear in front of the transparent crystal bottle. I looked at it with fixed eyes, trying to conjecture, and my hands trembled. Somebody had drunk the water. But who? I? I, without any doubt. It could surely only be I. In that case I was a somnambulist. I lived without knowing it, that double mysterious life which makes us doubt whether there are not two beings in us, or whether a strange, unknowable, and invisible being does not, at such moments when our soul is in a state of torpor, animate our captive body which obeys this other being, as it does ourselves, and more than it does ourselves. Oh, who will understand my horrible agony? Who will understand the emotion of a man who is sound in mind, wide awake, full of sound sense? and who looks in horror at the remains of a little water that has disappeared while he was asleep through the glass of a water-bottle. And I remained there until it was daylight, without venturing to go to bed again. July 6th. I am going mad. Again, all the contents of my water-bottle have been drunk during the night, or rather, I have drunk it. But is it I? Is it I? Who could it be? Who? Oh, God, I, I am going mad. Who will save me? July 10th. I have just been through some surprising ordeals. Decidedly, I am mad, and yet... On July 6th, before going to bed, I put some wine, milk, water, bread, and strawberries on my table. Somebody drank, I drank, all the water and a little of the milk, but neither the wine, bread, nor the strawberries were touched. On the 7th of July, I renewed the same experiment with the same results. And on July 8th, I left out the water and the milk and nothing was touched. Lastly, on July 9th, I put only water and milk on my table, taking care to wrap up the bottles in white muslin and to tie down the stoppers. Then I rubbed my lips, my beard, and my hands with pencil lead and went to bed. Irresistible sleep seized me, which was soon followed by a terrible awakening. I had not moved, and my sheets were not marked. I rushed to the table. The muslin round the bottles remained intact. I undid the string, trembling with fear. All the water had been drunk, and so had the milk. Ah! Uh, great God! I must start for Paris immediately. July 12th, Paris. I must have lost my head during the last few days. I, I must be the plaything of my enervated imagination, unless I am really a somnambulist, or that I have been brought under the power of one of those influences which have been proved to exist, but which have hitherto been inexplicable, which are called suggestions. In any case, my mental state bordered on madness, and twenty-four hours of Paris sufficed to restore me to my equilibrium. Yesterday, after doing some business and paying some visits which instilled fresh and invigorating mental air into me, I wound up my evening at the Théâtre Français. A play by Alexandre Dumas, the younger, was being acted, and his active and powerful mind completed my cure. Certainly solitude is dangerous for active minds. We require men who can think and can talk around us. When we are alone for a long time, we people space with phantoms. 
I returned along the boulevards to my hotel in excellent spirits. Amid the jostling of the crowd I thought, not without irony, of my terrors and surmises of the previous week, because I believed, yes, I believed, that an invisible being lived beneath my roof. How weak our head is, and how quickly it is terrified and goes astray as soon as we are struck by a small, incomprehensible fact. Instead of concluding with these simple words, I do not understand because the cause escapes me, we immediately imagine terrible mysteries and supernatural powers. July 14th. Fate of the Republic. I walked through the streets, and the crackers and flags amused me like a child. Still, it is very foolish to be merry on a fixed date by a government decree. The populace is an imbecile flock of sheep, now steadily patient, and now in ferocious revolt. Say to it, amuse yourself, and it amuses itself. Say to it, go and fight with your neighbor, and it goes and fights. Say to it, vote for the emperor, and it votes for the emperor. And then say to it, vote for the republic, and it votes for the republic. Those who direct it are also stupid, but instead of obeying men they obey principles, which can only be stupid, sterile, and false for the very reason that they are principles. That is to say, ideas which are considered as certain and unchangeable in this world where one is certain of nothing, since light is an illusion and noise is an illusion. July 16th. I saw some things yesterday that troubled me very much. I was dining at my cousin Madame Sabal, whose husband is colonel of the 76th Chasseur at Limoges. There were two young women there, one of whom had married a medical man, Dr. Parent, who devotes himself a great deal to nervous diseases and the extraordinary manifestations to which at this moment experiments in hypnotism and suggestion give rise. He related to us at some length the enormous results obtained by English scientists and the doctors of the medical school at Nancy and the facts which he adduced appeared to me so strange that I declared that I was altogether incredulous. We are, he declared, on the point of discovering one of the most important secrets of nature. I mean to say, one of its most important secrets on this earth, for there are certainly some which are a different kind of importance up in the stars yonder. Ever since man has thought, since he has been able to express and write down his thoughts, he has felt himself close to a mystery which is impenetrable to his coarse and imperfect senses, and he endeavors to supplement the want of power of his organs by the efforts of his intellect. As long as that intellect still remained in its elementary stage, this intercourse with invisible spirits assumed forms which were commonplace, though terrifying. Thence sprang the popular belief in the supernatural, the legends of wandering spirits, of fairies, of gnomes, ghosts. I might even say the legend of God. For our conceptions of the workman-creator, from whatever religion they may have come down to us, are certainly the most mediocre, the stupidest, and the most unacceptable inventions that ever sprang from the frightened brain of any human creatures. Nothing is truer than what Voltaire says. God made man in his own image, but man has certainly paid him back again. But for rather more than a century men seem to have had a presentiment of something new. Mesmer and some others have put us on an unexpected track, and especially within the last two or three years we have arrived at really surprising results. My cousin, who is also very incredulous, smiled, and Dr. Parent said to her, Would you like me to try and send you to sleep, madame? Yes. Certainly. She sat down in an easy chair, and he began to look at her fixedly, so as to fascinate her. 
I suddenly felt myself somewhat uncomfortable, with a beating heart and a choking feeling in my throat. I saw that Madame Sabal's eyes were growing heavy, her mouth twitched and her bosom heaved, and at the end of ten minutes she was asleep. "'Stand behind her,' the doctor said to me, and so I took a seat behind her. He put a visiting card into her hands and said to her, "'This is a looking-glass. What do you see in it?' And she replied, I see my cousin. What is he doing? He is twisting his mustache? And now he's taking a photograph out of his pocket. Whose photograph is it his own? That was true, and that photograph had been given me that same evening at the hotel. What is his attitude in the portrait? He is standing up with his hat in his hand. So. She saw on that card, on that piece of white pasteboard, as if she had been looking at it in a looking-glass. The young women were frightened and exclaimed, That is quite enough, quite, quite enough. But the doctor said to her authoritatively, You will get up at eight o'clock tomorrow morning, and then you will go and call on your cousin at his hotel and ask him to lend you five thousand francs, which your husband demands of you, and which he will ask for when he sets out on his coming journey. Then he woke her up. On returning to my hotel I thought over this curious séance, and I was assailed by doubts, not as to my cousin's absolute and undoubted good faith, for I had known her as well as if she had been my own sister ever since she was a child, but as to a possible trick on the doctor's part. Had not he perhaps kept a glass hidden in his hand which he showed to the young woman in her sleep at the same time as he did the card? Professional conjurers do things which are just as singular. So I went home and to bed, and this morning, at about half-past eight, I was awakened by my footman, who said to me, Madame Sabal has asked to see you immediately, monsieur. So I dressed hastily and went to her. She sat down in some agitation, with her eyes on the floor, and without raising her veil, she said to me, My dear cousin, I am going to ask a great favor of you. What is it, cousin? I do not like to tell you, and yet I must. I am in absolute want of five thousand francs. What, you? Yes, I, or rather my husband, who has asked me to procure them for him. I was so stupefied that I stammered out my answers. I asked myself whether she had not really been making fun of me with Dr. Parent, if it were not merely a very well-acted farce which had been got up beforehand. On looking at her attentively, however, my doubts disappeared. She was trembling with grief, so painful was this step to her, and I was sure that her throat was full of sobs. I knew that she was very rich, and so I continued, What? Has not your husband five thousand francs at his disposal? Come, think. Are you sure that he commissioned you to ask me for them? She hesitated for a few seconds, as if she were making a great effort to search her memory, and then she replied, Yes, yes, I am quite sure of it. He has written to you?" She hesitated again and reflected, and I guessed the torture of her thoughts. She did not know. She only knew that she was to borrow five thousand francs of me for her husband. So she told a lie. Yes, he has written me. When, pray? You did not mention it to me yesterday. I received his letter this morning. Can you show it to me? No, no. It contained private matters, things too personal to ourselves. I burnt it. So your husband runs into debt. She hesitated again and then murmured, I, I do not know. Thereupon I said bluntly, I have not five thousand francs at my disposal at this moment, dear cousin. 
She uttered a kind of cry, as if she were in pain, and said, Oh, oh, I beseech you, I beseech you to get them for me. She got excited and clasped her hands as if she were praying to me. I heard her voice change its tone. She wept and stammered, harassed and dominated by the irresistible order that she had received. Oh, oh, I beg you to, if you knew what I am suffering, I, I want them today. I had pity on her. You shall have them by and by, I swear to you. Oh, thank you, thank you, how kind you are. I continued, do you remember what took place at your house last night? Yes. Do you remember that Dr. Parent sent you to sleep? Yes. Oh, very well, then. He ordered you to come to me this morning to borrow five thousand francs, and at this moment you are obeying that suggestion. She considered for a few moments, and then replied, But as it is my husband who wants them— For a whole hour I tried to convince her, but could not succeed, and when she had gone I went to the doctor. He was just going out, and he listened to me with a smile, and said, do you believe now? Yes, I cannot help it. Let us go to your cousin's. She was already dozing on a couch, overcome with fatigue. The doctor felt her pulse, looked at her for some time with one hand raised toward her eyes, which she closed by degrees under the irresistible power of this influence. And when she was asleep, he said, Your husband does not require the five thousand francs any longer. You must, therefore, forget that you asked your cousin to lend them to you and if he speaks to you about it, you will not understand him. Then he woke her up, and I took out a pocket-book, and said, Here is what you asked me for this morning, my dear cousin. But she was so surprised that I did not venture to persist. Nevertheless, I tried to recall the circumstance to her, but she denied it vigorously, thought that I was making fun of her, and in the end very nearly lost her temper. There. I have just come back, and I have not been able to eat any lunch, for this experiment has altogether upset me. July 19th. Many people to whom I have told the adventure have laughed at me. I no longer know what to think. The wise man says, perhaps. July 21st. I dined at Bougival, and then I spent the evening at a boatman's ball. Decidedly everything depends on place and surroundings. It would be the height of folly to believe in the supernatural on the Ile de la Grenouillère, but on top of Mont Saint-Michel, and in India? We are terribly under the influence of our surroundings. I shall return home next week. July 30th. I came back to my house yesterday. Everything is going on well. August 2nd. Nothing fresh. It is splendid weather, and I spend my days in watching the Seine flow past. August 4th. Quarrels among my servants. They declare that the glasses are broken in the cupboards at night. The footman accuses the cook, who accuses the needlewoman, who accuses the other two. Who is the culprit? A clever person to be able to tell. August 6th. This time I am not mad. I have seen, I have seen, I have seen. I can doubt no longer. I have seen it. I was walking at two o'clock among my rose-trees in the full sunlight, in the walk bordered by autumn roses which are beginning to fall. As I stopped to look at a Jean de Bataille, which had three splendid blooms, I distinctly saw the stalk of one of the roses bend, close to me, as if an invisible hand had bent it, and then break, as if that hand had picked it. Then the flower raised itself, following the curve which a hand would have described in carrying it toward a mouth and it remained suspended in the transparent air, all alone and motionless, a terrible red spot three yards from my eyes. 
In desperation I rushed it to take it. I found nothing. It had disappeared. Then I was seized with furious rage against myself, for it is not allowable for a reasonable and serious man to have such hallucinations. But was it a hallucination? I turned round to look for the stalk, and I found it immediately under the bush, freshly broken, between two other roses which remained on the branch. And I returned home then with a much disturbed mind, for I am certain now, as certain as I am of the alteration of day and night, that there exists close to me an invisible being that lives on milk and on water, which can touch objects, take them and change their places, which is consequently endowed with a material nature, although it is impossible to our senses, and which lives, as I do, under my roof. August 7th. I slept tranquilly. He drank the water out of my decanter, but did not disturb my sleep. I ask myself whether I am mad. As I was walking just now in the sun by the riverside, doubts as to my own sanity arose in me, not vague doubts such as I have had hitherto, but precise and absolute doubts. I have seen mad people, and I have known some who have been quite intelligent, lucid, even clear-sighted in every concern of life except on one point. They spoke clearly, readily, profoundly on everything, when suddenly their thoughts struck upon the breakers of their madness and broke to pieces there, and were dispersed and foundered in that furious and terrible sea full of bounding waves, fogs, and squalls, which is called madness. I certainly should think that I was mad, absolutely mad, if I were not conscious, did not perfectly know my state, if I did fathom it by analyzing it with the most complete lucidity. I should, in fact, be a reasonable man who was laboring under a hallucination. Some unknown disturbance must have been excited in my brain, one of those disturbances which physiologists of the present day try to note and to fix precisely, and that disturbance must have caused a profound gulf in my mind and in the order and logic of my ideas. Similar phenomena occur in the dreams which lead us through the most unlikely phantasmagoria without causing us any surprise because our verifying apparatus and our sense of control has gone to sleep, while our imaginative faculty wakes and works. Is it not possible that one of the imperceptible keys of the cerebral fingerboard has been paralyzed in me? Some men lose the recollection of proper names, or of verbs, or of numbers, or merely of dates in consequence of an accident. The localization of all the particles of thought has been proved nowadays. What then would there be surprising in the fact that my faculty of controlling the unreality of certain hallucinations should be destroyed for the time being? I thought of all this as I walked by the side of the water. The sun was shining brightly on the river and made earth delightful while it filled my looks with love for life, for the swallows whose agility is always delightful in my eyes, for the plants by the riverside whose rustling is a pleasure to my ears. By degrees, however, an inexplicable feeling of discomfort seized me. It seemed to me as if some unknown force were numbing and stopping me, were preventing me from going farther, and were calling me back. I felt that painful wish to return, which oppresses you when you have left a beloved invalid at home, and when you are seized by a presentiment that he is worse. I therefore returned, in spite of myself, feeling certain that I should find some bad news awaiting me, a letter or a telegram. There was nothing, however, and I was more surprised and uneasy than if I had had another fantastic vision. August 8th. I spent a terrible evening yesterday. He does not show himself any more, but I feel that he is near me, watching me, looking at me, penetrating me, dominating me, and more redoubtable when he hides himself thus than if he were to manifest his constant and invisible presence by supernatural phenomenon. However, 
I slept. August 9th. Nothing. But I am afraid. August 10th. Nothing. What will happen tomorrow? August 11th. Still nothing. I cannot stop at home with this fear hanging over me and these thoughts in my mind. I shall go away. August 12th. Ten o'clock at night. All day long I've been trying to get away and have not been able. I wish to accomplish this simple and easy act of liberty. Go out, get in my carriage, in order to go to Rouen. And I have not been able to do it. What is the reason? August 13th. When one is attacked by certain maladies, all the springs of our physical being appear to be broken, all our energies destroyed, all our muscles relaxed, our bones to have become as soft as our flesh, and our blood as liquid as water. I am experiencing that in my moral being in a strange and distressing manner. I have no longer any strength, any courage, any self-control, nor even any power to set my own will in motion. I have no power left to will anything, but someone does it for me, and I obey. August 14th. I am lost. Somebody possesses my soul and governs it. Somebody orders all my acts, all my movements, all my thoughts. I am no longer anything in myself, nothing except an enslaved and terrified spectator of all the things which I do. I wish to go out. I cannot. He does not wish to. And so I remain trembling and distracted in the armchair in which he keeps me sitting. I merely wish to get up and to rouse myself so as to think that I am still master of myself. I cannot. I am riveted to my chair, and my chair adheres to the ground in such a manner that no force could move us. Then, suddenly, I must, I must go to the bottom of my garden and pick some strawberries and eat them. And I go there. I, I pick the strawberries and I eat them. Oh, my God, my God, I, I, is there a God? If there be one, deliver me, save me, succor me, pardon, pity, mercy, save me. Oh, what sufferings, what torture, what horror! August 15th. Certainly, this is the way in which my poor cousin was possessed and swayed when she came to borrow five thousand francs of me. She was under the power of a strange will which had entered into her, like another soul, like another parasitic and ruling soul. Is the world coming to an end? But who is he, this invisible being that rules me, this unknowable being, this rover of a supernatural race? Invisible beings exist, then. How is it, then, that since the beginning of the world they have never manifested themselves in such a manner precisely as they do to me? I have never read anything which resembles what goes on in my house. Oh, if I could only leave it, if I could only go away and flee so as to never return, I should be saved. But I cannot. August 16th. I managed to escape today for two hours, like a prisoner who finds the door of his dungeon accidentally open. I suddenly felt that I was free and that I was far away, and so I gave orders to put the horses in as quickly as possible. And I drove to Rouen. Oh, how delightful to be able to say to a man who obeyed you, Go to Rouen! I made him pull up before the library, and I begged them to lend me Dr. Hermann Herstrasse's treatise on the unknown inhabitants of the ancient and modern world. Then, as I was getting into my carriage, I intended to say, To the railway station! But instead of this, I shouted. I did not say, but I shouted, in such a loud voice that all the passers-by turned round, HOME, and I fell back into the cushion of my carriage, overcome by mental agony. He had found me out and regained possession of me. August 17th. Oh, what a night, what a night, and yet it seems to me that I ought to rejoice. I read until one o'clock in the morning. Herr Stasis, 
doctor of philosophy in theogony, wrote the history and the manifestation of all those invisible beings which hover around man, or of whom he dreams. He describes their origin, their domains, their power, but none of them resembles the one which haunts me. One might say that man, ever since he has thought, has had a foreboding of and feared a new being stronger than himself, his successor in this world, and that feeling him near and not being able to foretell the nature of that master, he has in his terror created the whole race of hidden beings, of vague phantoms born of fear. Having therefore read until one o'clock in the morning, I went and sat down at the open window in order to cool my forehead and my thoughts in the calm night air. It was very pleasant and warm. How I should have enjoyed such a night formerly! There was no moon, but the stars darted out their rays in the dark heavens. Who inhabits those worlds? What forms, what living beings, what animals are there yonder? What do those who are thinkers in those distant worlds know more than we do? What can they do more than we can? What do they see which we do not know? Will not one of them some day or other traversing space appear on our earth to conquer it, just as the Norsemen formerly crossed the sea in order to subjugate nations more feeble than themselves? We are so weak, so unarmed, so ignorant, so small, we who live on this particle of mud which turns round in a drop of water. I fell asleep, dreaming thus in the cool night air and then, having slept for about three-quarters of an hour, I opened my eyes without moving, awakened by I know not what confused and strange sensation. At first I saw nothing, and then suddenly it appeared to me as if a page of a book which had remained open on my table turned over of its own accord. Not a breath of air had come in at my window, and I was surprised and waited. In about four minutes I saw, I saw, Yes, I saw it with my own eyes, another page lift itself up and fall down on the others, as if a finger had turned it over. My armchair was empty, appeared empty, but I knew that he was there. He was sitting in my place, and that he was reading. With a furious bound, the bound of an enraged wild beast that wishes to disembowel its tamer, I crossed my room to seize him, to strangle him, to kill him. But before I could reach it, my chair fell over as if somebody had run away from me. My table rocked, my lamp fell and went out, and my window closed as if some thief had been surprised and had fled out into the night, shutting it behind him. So he had run away. He had been afraid. He, afraid of me. So, so, tomorrow, or later, some day or other, I should be able to hold him in my clutches and crush him against the ground. Do not dogs occasionally bite and strangle their masters? August 18th. I have been thinking the whole day long. Oh, yes, I will obey him, follow his impulses, fulfill all his wishes, show myself humble, submissive, a coward. He is the stronger, but an hour will come. August 19th. I know, I know, I, I know it all. I have just read the following in the Revue de Mont Scientifique. A curious piece of news comes to us from Rio de Janeiro. Madness an epidemic of madness which may be compared to that contagious madness which attacked the peoples of Europe in the Middle Ages, is at this moment raging in the province of São Paulo. The frightened inhabitants are leaving their houses, deserting their villages, abandoning their land, saying that they are pursued, possessed, governed like human cattle by invisible though tangible beings, a species of vampire which feed on their life while they are asleep, and who, besides, drink water and milk without appearing to touch any other nourishment. Professor Dom Pedro Enrique, accompanied by several medical savants, has gone to the province of São Paulo, 
in order to study the origin and the manifestations of this surprising madness on the spot, and to propose such measures to the Emperor as may appear to him to be most fitted to restore the mad population to reason. Ah, ah, I remember now that fine Brazilian three-master which passed in front of my windows as it was going up the Seine on the 8th of last May. I thought it looked so pretty, so white and bright. That being was on board of her, coming from there, where its race sprang from. And it saw me, it saw my house, which was also white, and it sprang from the ship onto the land. Oh, good heavens! Now I know, I can divine, the reign of man is over, and he has come, he whom disquieted priests exorcised, whom sorcerers evoked on dark nights without yet seeing him appear to whom the presentiments of the transient masters of the world lent all the monstrous or graceful forms of gnomes, spirits, genie, fairies, and familiar spirits. After the coarse conceptions of primitive fear, more clear-sighted men foresaw it more clearly. Mesmer divined him, and ten years ago physicians accurately discovered the nature of his power even before he exercised it himself. They played with that weapon of their new lord, the sway of a mysterious will over the human soul which had become enslaved. They called it magnetism, hypnotism, suggestion. What do I know? I have seen them amusing themselves like impudent children with this horrible power. Woe to us! Woe to man! He has come, the... the... what does he call himself? The... I fancy that he is shouting out his name to me and I do not hear him. The... yes, he is shouting it out. I am listening. I cannot repeat it. Horla! I have heard the Horla. It is he, the Horla. He has come. Ah, the vulture has eaten the pigeon. The wolf has eaten the lamb. The lion has devoured the buffalo with sharp horns. Man has killed the lion with an arrow, with a sword, with gunpowder. But the Horla will make of man what we have made of the horse and of the ox, his chattel, his slave, and his food by the mere power of his will. Woe to us! But nevertheless, the animal sometimes revolts and kills the man who has subjugated it. I should also like, I shall be able to, but I must know him, touch him, see him. Learned men say that beasts' eyes, as they differ from ours, do not distinguish like ours do, and my eye cannot distinguish this newcomer who is oppressing me. Why? Oh, now I remember the words of the monk at Mont Saint-Michel. Can we see the hundred-thousandth part of what exists? Look here. There is the wind, which is the strongest force in nature, which knocks down men and blows down buildings, uproots trees, raises the sea into mountains of water, destroys cliffs, and casts great ships onto the breakers. The wind which kills, which whistles, which sighs, which roars. Have you ever seen it? And can you see it? It exists for all that, however. And I went on thinking. My eyes are so weak, so imperfect, that they do not even distinguish hard bodies if they are as transparent as glass. If a glass without tinfoil behind it were to bar my way, I should run into it, just as a bird which has flown into a room breaks its head against the window-panes. A thousand things, moreover, deceive him and lead him astray. How should it then be surprising that he cannot perceive a fresh body which is traversed by the light? A new being? Why not? It was assuredly bound to come. Why should we be the last? We do not distinguish it like all the other created before us. The reason is that its nature is more perfect, its body finer and more finished than ours. That ours is so weak, so awkwardly conceived, encumbered with organs that are always tired, always on the strain like locks that are too complicated. 
which lives like a plant and like a beast nourishing itself with difficulty on air, herbs, and flesh. An animal machine which is prey to maladies, to malformations, to decay, broken-winded, badly regulated, simple and eccentric, ingeniously badly made. A coarse and a delicate work, the outline of a being which might become intelligent and grand. We are only a few, so few in this world, from the oyster up to man. Why should there not be one more, when once that period is accomplished which separates the successive apparitions from all the different species? Why not one more? Why not also other trees with immense splendid flowers perfuming whole regions? Why not other elements besides fire, air, earth, and water? There are four, only four, those nursing fathers of various beings. What a pity! Why are they not forty, four hundred, four thousand? How poor everything is, how mean and wretched, grudgingly given, dryly invented, clumsily made. Ah, the elephant and the hippopotamus, what grace, and the camel, what elegance. But the butterfly, you will say, a flying flower. I dream of one that should be as large as a hundred worlds, with wings whose shape, beauty, colors, and motion I cannot even express. But I see it. It flutters from star to star, refreshing them and perfuming them with the light and the harmonious breath of its flight. And the people up there look at it as it passes in an ecstasy of delight. What is the matter with me? It is he, the Horla, who haunts me and who makes me think of these foolish things. He is within me. He is becoming my soul. I shall kill him. August 19th. I shall kill him. I have seen him. Yesterday I sat down at my table and pretended to write very assiduously. I knew quite well that he would come prowling round me, quite close to me, so close that I might perhaps be able to touch him, to seize him. And then, then I should have the strength of desperation. I should have my hands, my knees, my chest, my forehead, my teeth to strangle him, to crush him, to bite him, to tear him to pieces. And I watched for him with all my overexcited organs. I had lighted my two lamps and the eight wax candles on my mantelpiece, as if by this light I could have discovered him. My bed, my old oak bed with its columns, was opposite to me. On my right was the fireplace, on my left the door, which was carefully closed after I had left it open for some time in order to attract him. Behind me was a very high wardrobe with a looking-glass in it, which served to make me my toilette every day, and in which I was in the habit of looking at myself from head to foot every time I passed it. So I pretended to be writing in order to deceive him, for he was also watching me, and suddenly I felt, I was certain, that he was reading over my shoulder, that he was there, almost touching my ear. I got up so quickly with my hands extended that I almost fell. Eh? Well, it was as bright as midday, but I did not see myself in the glass. It was empty, clear, profound, full of light, but my figure was not reflected in it. And I, I was opposite to it. I saw the large clear glass from top to bottom, and I looked at it with unsteady eyes, and I did not dare to advance. I did not venture to make a movement, nevertheless feeling perfectly that he was there, but that he would escape me again, he whose imperceptible body had absorbed my reflection. How frightened I was! And then, suddenly, I began to see myself through a mist in the depths of the looking-glass, in a mist as if it were through a sheet of water and it seemed to me as if this water were flowing slowly from left to right and making my figure clearer every moment. It was like the end of an eclipse. Whatever it was that hid me did not appear to possess any clearly defined outlines, but a sort of opaque transparency which gradually grew clearer. 
At last I was able to distinguish myself completely, as I do every day when I look at myself. I had seen it, and the horror of it remained with me and makes me shudder even now. August 20th. How could I kill it as I could not get hold of it? Poison? But it would see me mix it with the water, and then would our poison have any effect on its impalpable body? No, no, no doubt about the matter. Then, then... August 21st. I sent for a blacksmith from Rouen, and ordered iron shutters of him for my room, such as some private hotels in Paris have on the ground floor for fear of thieves, and he is going to make me a similar door as well. I have made myself out as a coward, but I do not care about that. September 10th. Rouen Hotel Continental. It is done. It is done. But is he dead? My mind is thoroughly upset by what I have seen. Well, then. Yesterday, the locksmith having put on the iron shutters and door, I left everything open until midnight, although it was getting cold. Suddenly I felt that he was there, and joy, mad joy, took possession of me. I got up softly, and I walked to the right and left for some time, so that he might not guess anything. Then I took off my boots and put on my slippers carelessly. Then I fastened the iron shutters, and going back to the door quickly, I double-locked it with a padlock, putting the key into my pocket. Suddenly I noticed that he was moving restlessly round me, that in his turn he was frightened and was ordering me to let him out. I nearly yielded, though I did not yet, but putting my back to the door I half opened it, just enough to allow me to go out backward, and as I am very tall my head touched the lintel. I was sure that he had not been able to escape, and I shut him up quite alone, quite alone. What happiness! I had him fast! Then I ran downstairs in the drawing-room which was under my bedroom. I took the two lamps and I poured all the oil onto the carpet, the furniture, everywhere. Then I set fire to it and made my escape, after having carefully double-locked the door. I went and hid myself at the bottom of the garden in a clump of laurel bushes. How long it was! How long it was! Everything was dark, silent, motionless. Not a breath of air and not a star, but heavy banks of clouds which one could not see, but which weighed, oh, so heavily on my soul. I looked at my house and waited. How long it was! I already began to think that the fire had gone out of its own accord, or that he had extinguished it when one of the lower windows gave way under the violence of the flames, and a long, soft, caressing sheet of red flame mounted up the white wall and kissed it as high as the roof. The light fell onto the trees, the branches and the leaves, and a shiver of fear pervaded them also. The birds awoke, a dog began to howl, and it seemed to me as if the day were breaking. Almost immediately two other windows flew into fragments, and I saw that the whole of the lower part of my house was nothing but a terrible furnace. But a cry, a horrible, shrill, heart-rending cry, a woman's cry, sounded through the night, and two garret windows were opened. I had forgotten the servants! I saw the terror-struck faces and their frantically waving arms. Then, overwhelmed with horror, I set off to run to the village, shouting, Help! Help! Fire! Fire! I met some people who were already coming onto the scene, and I went back with them to see. By this time the house was nothing but a horrible and magnificent funeral pile, a monstrous funeral pile which lit up the whole country, a funeral pile where men were burning, and where he was burning also. He! He! My prisoner! that new being, the new master, the Horla. Suddenly the whole roof fell in between the walls and a volcano of flames darted up to the sky. 
through all the windows which opened onto that furnace I saw the flames darting, and I thought that he was there, in that kiln, dead. Dead? Perhaps. His body? Was not his body, which was transparent, indestructible by such means as would kill ours? If he was not dead, perhaps time alone has power over that invisible and redoubtable being. Why this transparent, unrecognizable body, this body belonging to a spirit, if it also had to fear ills, infirmities, and premature destruction? Premature destruction? All human terror springs from that. After man, the Horla. After him, who can die every day, at any hour, at any moment, by any accident, he came who was only to die at his own proper hour and minute, because he had touched the limits of existence. No. No. Without any doubt, he is not dead. Then, then, I suppose I must kill myself. End of The Horla by Guy de Maupassant Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. And I'm Jenny Colvin. All right, uh, and we're here to talk about this story we've just heard, which is called The Horla by Guy de Montpassant. <laughs> That's a good pronunciation. Good nice. job. Thanks. Say magnifique. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I think this is a fabulous story. I think it's maybe my favorite story from the 19th century, which is pretty hard to believe considering wow. you know, H.G. Rells wrote Tons in the 19th century, right? Hmm. What makes that your favorite? Oh, I just I I, I love how uh, how modern it feels. Um, there's not really a lot to date it, other than the the distinct lack of mention of cell phones and stuff like that. Do you hmm. think it's science fiction? I totally think it's science fiction. What do you, What about you guys? I'd probably classify it as horror, but I guess that's kind of a branch of science fiction. Yeah, sort of. I mean, I, I knew you thought that, so I noticed little things. Like, he thinks about the stars and whether there are people Absolutely. stars that are going to oh, come yeah. here. And the Horla possibly being an alien. The Horla is definitely an alien. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, I mean, and, uh, at least that's what we're supposed to believe. Oh, it's not oh, just a tra- traditional ghost? Well, it feels like it's a traditional ghost story, right? And we get lots of setups to indicate that. But uh, there's a several. I, I, I've been through the story a couple of times, or three or four times, maybe. <laughs> and uh, I noticed that um, Guy de Montpassant is actually all the things that we think are just sort of incidents along the path to the eventual end. They're actually all lessons in how to understand the story. I think. He's like teaching us how to, uh, he's crafting our, our feeling about where he wants the story to how to, it should be interpreted, I think. So, uh, let's take, okay. let's take the example we sort of briefly talked about before the podcast started. Um, Mont Saint Michel is the first place he goes on vacation after he feels sick, right? Our, our unnamed narrator. Right. Do you guys know where Mont Saint Michel is? Somewhere in France. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. But um, uh, you, you've seen uh, it's, this is this isn't having to do with the uh, 
with the um, with the, the the lesson. It's just interesting and beautiful place. Uh, it's it's the castle that you see in uh, a bunch of movies, including uh, Lady Hawk. Do you remember Lady Hawk? That movie. I saw it. With Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, and Rutger Hauer. Right. And there's a there's a city like by the ocean, and uh, there's like a, a, a sort of a castle fortress on the on the ocean, and it's surrounded by a tidal flat. Just okay. yeah, my, or Mont Saint Michel. You'll totally recognize the. My exposure to it was in Second Life. There's, they've rebuilt it there, yeah. Uh-huh. So you can actually walk through it and everything. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very pretty, very pretty city, and it's in Normandy, which I, I think. Oh, okay. I think um, the ca- character lives in Normandy. I don't think it's specified exactly where, but it's somewhere on the seaside. So this isn't quite a, as much of a trek as I thought. I was picturing him being in Paris for some reason. Well, he does go to Paris later on. Okay. But uh, he goes to Mont Saint Michel, and then when he's there, he he hears a bunch of legends, local legends, and and one of them is the the story of uh, of the sound that is heard on the beach, I guess late at night or something like that, where there's um, uh, the sound of two goats bleeding, and the goats are um, being led along the ground by a ghost or something like that, and then and then if when people see the goats, they see that the goats actually have human faces. Right. And, and they're talking to each other incessantly. And I guess that's the sound of the ocean, but also it's a the legend, right? So as soon as you hear that, you say, oh, that's that's fantasy, right? That's That has nothing to do with... It's funny because that's just not how I, I read it. I was remembering some of the stories in the Bible, like where the pigs get demon-possessed... <laughs> Like okay. I, I was seeing kind of you know demons and hellish beasts instead of aliens. But. Well, no, no, but those aren't aliens. Certainly, I think that, that this is how he's he's tr- this is how he gets into uh, showing us the the main character's sort of headspace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've got that section here, probably a different translation, but I've got it highlighted. I'll, I'll read it here, uh, and he's, so here's that story. Uh, and then he writes it down in his journal. And uh, by the way, it only takes place between May and August. I think the the whole the whole story is you know like just a few months. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he says um, one of these legends struck me forcibly. The country people, those belonging to the Mornay, declare that at night one can hear talking going on in the sand, and that also the two go- that two goats bleat. One with a with a strong and the other with a weak voice. Incredulous people declare that it is nothing but the screaming of the sea, seabirds, which occasionally resembles bleedings and an occasionally human lamentations. But belated fishermen swear that they have met an old shepherd whose cloak covered head they never see, wandering on the sand between two tides, round the little town placed so far out of the world. That's the the beautiful Mont Saint Michel city. Uh, and they declare he is guiding and walking before a he-goat with a man's face and a she-goat with a woman's face, both with white hair, who talk incessantly, quarreling in a strange language, and then suddenly cease talking in order to bleat with all their might. And then 
that's the the sort of ghost legend story, right? That is like a local legend, and our main character has a reaction like that's bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's just it's like he would say, uh, it's just this ocean, right? Um, and that that helps us understand the character in, in getting inside his headspace. It says, uh, he says, uh, the monk, do you believe it? I asked the monk. I scarcely know, he replied. And I continued, if there are other things besides ourselves on this earth, how comes it that we have not known them for so long a time? Or why have you not seen them? How is it that I have not seen them? And then he gets into the explanation of the wind, right? The right. wind is a, and I thought this was a really powerful metaphor, but it's actually, if you think about it, it's it's not as mysterious as it makes it sound, right? So the wind is controlling uh, and moving things like almost t- telekinetically, and yet you've never seen the wind. No one can see the wind. You can only see what the wind does, and it's powerful enough to lift men off their feet and to ruin ships and make high mountains of water. It's a powerful, uh, almost supernatural force. And then we see that and say, oh, that seems reasonable. right? So he's bridging the gap between what things we don't see uh, that are almost legendary mythological and the scientific sort of end. Right. The, uh, something measurable and something explainable. Because the wind isn't uh, a despite what people thousands of years ago may have thought, it isn't a supernatural force uh, uh, with a will of its own. It's it's a natural force. So I, I yeah. think that that's like him teaching us how to uh, interpret what the character is doing. And because we're seeing it from his point of view, we get this... Um, we get this sense that he's his his ordeal is more real than if he just related all the crazy stuff that happens to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because he's very obviously basing everything on what he's personally experienced. Yeah. The idea it, of faith isn't, like, it's, it's kind of what people say for faith, too, the whole wind-god argument. You hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's writing everything down, so it's clear that he can't understand what he's experiencing, even as he's experiencing it. So it's kind of interesting for him to try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And then um, he goes he goes home feeling healthy, right? Yeah. And uh, and then he has no trouble for a while, and then suddenly he's he's uh, experiencing all sorts of horrible things again. Well, he just thinks he's sick. He thinks he's he thinks he's sick, but he says stuff like there's there's a feeling like something sitting on my chest. Yeah. Right. It's a succubus. Um, yeah, and. <laughs> I mean, it, it plays, like, you know, I when I first described the story, it's like a ghost story. But it's not just a ghost story. It's a ghost story. It's a succubus story. It's a vampire story. Um, it's not sucking his blood, but it's sucking his life energy out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think there's probably five or six more like that you could describe. But um, I, I, I should mention that there's a, an excellent uh, podcast um, by a guy named Jim Moon. Who his podcast is called Hypnobobs, which is like uh, 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 odds and bobs. I think is how the, the English say it. Uh, it's like little things together. But uh, he does uh, podcast reading of the story, and he does a like a two and a half hour. I think it is. Maybe it's only two hours. 
two hour, two and a half hour um, discussion of the story, which is by himself. Oh wow! Um, and nice. uh, and the movie as well, which we briefly mentioned earlier before the podcast started, uh, which is called Diary of a Madman. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a combination of one or two or more stories. Yeah, at least at least two two uh, Guy de Maupassant stories, probably uh, probably that and and whoever wrote its own own stuff as own well. Fevered imagination. Yes, yes, their own Orla inspired imagination. <laughs> Actually, it's too bad the the podcast uh, guy isn't here. I wanted to ask if I really Guy wish he was. I wanted to ask if Guy de Maupassant was really interested in science. It seems like in this story he's really struggling to. Uh, Understand science and how things work, and it's a shame. I, uh, I would, I would guess that uh, he's. I think he says that in that that other podcast, um, which I I think I have the notes for here somewhere. Let's see. Uh, yeah, it was podcast uh, earlier this year, March. Um, it's called Diary of a Madden Man, Hypnobobs. We'll put a link in the show notes, but um, I think he said that. Guy de Maupassant had written about 300 stories, short stories, and that about 10% of them were science fiction, fantasy, horror genre. Um, so it's, it, it seems really obvious to me that he is uh, sort of uh, interested in science uh, quite a bit in this story. Near the end, he's talking about um, the different, you know, he, when he's thinking he's sick, Still, he's he's think he's trying to explain everything in terms of, you know, something wrong with him. He says, you know, some people get brain damage, and they are unable to perceive uh, perceive things. And other people get brain damage and are unable to relate things. So you might not be able to say any verbs, but you you can do you can speak well. Other than that, you might not be able to say any proper nouns, right? So he's definitely you know up on up on the scientific explanations that are going on. Mm-hmm. What I was thinking about too, and I went back and looked it up was, you know, when Freud came along and mm-hmm. when psychological thrillers and discussions might've happened. And this story kind of predates that. Yeah. Um, but you could interpret it if it was written in the right era as more of a psychological drama, you know, maybe sure. it's the grief that's causing this instead of a a supernatural being of some sort, but you know, he didn't, I don't think the author intended it that way at all, but I, I don't think there is any grief in, in the, the, the story proper. I think there's grief in the movie. I don't, uh, do we oh. get a sense of his family in the, in the story? Cause I think, like, I guess he lives I with didn't servants. check that. Yeah. I think he just lives with servants. I don't think he has like, it's no mention of his age or, or, you know, whether he has any dead children or dead, Wives. I mean, that's the explanation in the movie, right? right. Darn movie, it just confused me. <laughs> that's what they do. Oh, and I believed you. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great explanation. It is yeah. a great explanation. Um, I'll tell you, uh, because Jim Moon's not here to tell us, um, I'll tell you what I heard him say in in the podcast, and he he was relating to it his uh, relating it to his own experience with depression. He thinks that um, that what we're seeing in the story is is sort of like a uh, could be like almost a, like a a parable for depression. Well, maybe that's not the right way of putting it. But um, do you like the opening 
diary entry is very uplifting, right? He's just happy. He's He says, oh, what a lovely day. Um, here under the tree, I've been lying here all day looking at the ship going by. Maybe he's bipolar. Absolutely. But in the sense that he's 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 perfectly happy one day. And then he says, you know, isn't it strange how suddenly things can go badly, right? Isn't it strange how suddenly uh, a perfectly, for no reason, you're just walking along and all of a sudden you're depressed. And and I think to myself, well, that doesn't happen to me very often. Um, so what is he talking about? But uh, uh, Jim Moon seems to think that, that this is uh, something... Possible, and I know in in um, uh, some of his other discussions, he was saying that it might have been related to uh, the the disease that everybody gets in the 19th century, which is uh, uh, syphilis. Oh, <laughs> and syphilis. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know if that's exactly a. a, a it does a have symptom. madness involved. Though. It does have madness, okay. and mm-hmm. it, and it can manifest itself in various ways. Um, but often this is uh, used as the explanation as to why he wrote the story, because he, he did have syphilis, apparently Guy de Maupassant did, oh. as did basically everybody else in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, Lovecraft, right, his family, um, and, uh, and probably... And, and who? Ben Franklin? Oh, well, I'm sure he was, he was riddled with syphilis. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, but they yes, take milk when they have syphilis. That, well, that's see that that was the first indication to me that this is a science fiction story because the character has a science fiction attitude, or at least he he is a he is a person with an attitude of science, right? He's he has this problem. He goes to bed and he wakes up, and the water that he's put by his bed has been drank, right? Somebody's drank it. Well, he feels thirsty. He doesn't see it. He he doesn't think he sleepwalk sleepwalks. So, how did it get? How did it get uh, drank? And uh, so he do, he conducts that experiment. I thought that was like really clever. Yes, yeah, the whole experience thing again. I have to oh, prove oh, he, that it really happened. You know, absolutely. And he brushes lead it. on his lips. Yeah. yeah. Put some sort of black material all over his hands and his, and, uh, and, and then t- ties the cover, he, first he covers up the, the milk and the water with, with white linen or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that he couldn't get access to it. And that's like, damn, if that was happening to me, I'd be like bouncing off the walls too. Because he, he basically proves that it couldn't have been him, right? Yeah, that was right a good in, scientific experiment. Go, go ahead. Yeah. There's some kind of connection. Like, that's how he figured out what kind of being it was, because there were stories from somewhere else, right, about the creatures. That's how he came up with the name for it. So, uh, Well, I think I think the name came from, from inside him, mm. right? Because this is not like, you know, we were saying this is a vampire story. This is a succubus story. This is a ghost story. But also, it's a possession story, right? Like right. You would see in The Exorcist or something like that. It's it's uh it's like a demon has taken over his soul. It it controls his his actions physically. It prevents him from moving. Also prevents him 
from saying things that he wants to say, like, take me to the city, uh, he, it says, in, instead his body says, take me home uh, to the driver. And he he's just like, he can't control him, himself. That sort of fits in with the... Uh, the the movie as well I guess. Right. Well, and then the movie also... his eyes are glowing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the visual element. Yeah. When he was on his way to Rune on August nineteenth, it's from the August nineteenth entry. Mm-hmm. He had read the following in the review de Monde Scientifique. Excuse right. me, French. But he was. It was a. French. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> There's an article from Rio de Janeiro. Mm-hmm. about um, a madness epidemic where the inhabitants were leaving their villages because they were pursued and possessed mm-hmm. by a being like a vampire, which well, fed off their life while they were asleep and drank yeah. water and milk. And he was like, aha, it's the same thing. It's, of course it is, right? <laughs> That's the external confirmation. Right. That's what he needed. It's like he couldn't even believe in it until someone else had experienced it too. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, like- he was just crazy. Yeah, it'd be like if you were having this happen to you today, you probably wouldn't go to your doctor right away because you'd be worried, right? Right. Go on the internet and you'd start looking for similar people, you know, type it into Google and see if there's a, uh, uh, what, uh, I, I'm not drinking the water beside my bed, but somebody else is drinking huh. it and see, see what other people have filled in, right? Yeah. <laughs> go to webmd.com. That's right. <laughs> trying to diagnose yourself and figure out what's wrong with you. Um, but back then, luckily, he's, he's got the newspaper to tell him. Um, this is interesting, really interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because he thinks that he's figured out how he got this, right? And why he's also come up with the explanation as to why no one else knows what he's talking about. Right. Or would talk about if he was telling them. It was just that one moment because he happened to see the ship. <laughs> right. Right. But it jumped off the ship, right. right? And you remember what he was doing when he saw the ship? He got an urge to wave to it. Yes, so he sent it a message or something. That's right, he said he invited <laughs> it. <laughs> right? Like a vampire, you have to invite them in. That's, That's right. Um, and so it, it it turns out, I think I think it's very clearly that they're aliens. The Horlas are aliens. And I think there's more than one of them. Because there's some in in uh, Rio de Janeiro, or not Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo, um, and there's not, there, it's now in France, and it's sort of invading the earth. It didn't just come out of the forest, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, Jim Moon found, uh, I think, a really really great answer to. Uh, I wish he was here to tell us, but I'll tell tell us. I'll I'll steal his information very happily. Because it's so good. Um, the Horla, it's just a name, right? What does it mean? Is that derived from anything? Yeah. Okay. It, he he <laughs> apparently did a lot of research and found the answer. And it basically means the beyond. Okay. <laughs> and when he talks about, uh, you know, sort of the natural world and not knowing all the things that are out there, all the invisible things that we don't see, one of the things he talks about is... Uh, what lives beyond the Earth, right? What lives on, uh, he, say, he actually says on other stars, but it should be, you know, on the planets around other stars. Hmm. And so it's, it's. I think it's sort of the, uh, it, he's at the vanguard of the invasion of, of Europe. It's already invaded South America, 
and I think, you know, if there was a Horla, the, the sequel to the Horla, it would be like, uh, you know, somewhere else in the world where it's getting, the invasion is happening. It's just so funny because I never read Aliens into it at all. Really? Like, even, even in that explanation, you could say, well, maybe it's in the beyond, it's beyond the grave, and it's just sure. like, you know, the undead more than something sure. from another planet or something. Sure. Because he can still communicate with it. I guess the one argument would be that he can't see it. So it, it might be living in some kind of dimension that he doesn't have access to or something. Because uh, it, it gets well, upset. Yeah. That, you know, it's like blocking his view in the mirror. And he's, you know, that was kind of a strange moment. Yeah, that was like a sort of vampire-like too. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know how that would even work. It, it's He looks in the mirror and he can see the room but he can't see himself. That sounds like he's the vampire, right? Yeah. Um, but he taunted so, him until he, you know, figured out where he was. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's a, it's a predator. It's got that cloaking device, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or something like that. Um, but it, it also seems like a man too. Like if you see sort of what the Horla does, uh, it seems like a human being in many ways because other than the fact that it only drinks milk and, and water, doesn't drink uh, or eat strawberries, right? Maybe it's allergic to strawberries. But uh, <laughs> I thought it might have been Santa Claus. <laughs> you need to leave out some cookies. <laughs> there's, um, there's a scene in the garden. He's in the garden and he, he's walking along and that's when he discovers that it's not just at night and it's not just, uh, you know, when he's sort of coming out of sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sees a rose, uh, a rose bush bend, right. and then the rose pops off and hangs in midair as if held to a face, right? Mm-hmm. And that's in the movie, too. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, and then later on, he's in the house, uh, and he sees a book, and the page turns. And then he waits like four minutes and another page turns. It's like reading his diary or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what the hell? <laughs> and, and maybe it's learned English or maybe it, maybe it is English. Is it another person like him? So there's one other scene that I think sets the stage for, uh, sort of understanding what's going to happen again. You know, Guy de Montfaucon teaching us what is happening going to happen and that's when he he escapes to paris remember mm-hmm. he goes to paris and he meets with his cousin who's a married woman and they uh have a discussion of hypnotism they go to a hypnotist and she gets a post-hypnotic suggestion right that um she what is it ask she's gonna for ask for money yeah, yeah, she's gonna, she's gonna need $5,000 because her husband asked for it, even though her husband didn't ask for it. And it works, right? The hypnotist, uh, is successful in hypnotizing her and convincing her that her husband had asked her for money. And what's really kind of cool there is that, um, when the main character, a named narrator, says, confronts her and says, uh, who told, you know, how did you find this out from your husband? He's not in town. And she says, oh, I got a letter, right? And the hypnotist didn't tell her that. Mm. 
Um, and, and he says, oh, can I see this letter? And he says, no, uh, it has personal information in it. Um, and he says, well, um, uh, do you still have it? And he says, no, I burned it. And the, so what she's doing is called confabulation. When you've got uh, a gap between what you think you know and where you are, you fill in the blanks uh, with not necessarily lies, but plausible sounding things that fit the the scenario. And so this is like when you experience something strange, right? So earlier today, uh, something fell off the counter in my kitchen, right? Uh, I, mean, I haven't even gotten to pick it up yet. It's I, I heard it fall off the counter in my kitchen. There was no one there. <laughs> it was a ghost, right? That's one interpretation. It was a, the horla was looking for my uh, my milk, right? right? It was digging around in the cupboards, fell off. Something fell off the counter. Um, if uh, if I uh, say I heard a ghostly voice and I didn't actually hear it, then that would be a confirmational confabulation between me and the end. And so that's sort of the tension back to the fantasy element. Hmm. But because it's a repeatable process and it's explainable by at least this, um, hu- you know, human, it's a quasi phenomenon, right? Uh, people do get hypnotized. Sure. Uh, I, thought, what, I thought it was bunk. Well, it is bunk in a way because the thing is, is there, you know, why can't everyone be hypnotized? Because uh, hypnotism seems to be a, an ability. The ability to be hypnotized is a, is not universal. And what it seems to be is a willing participation in uh, letting someone else take over your will. So if you think of yourself as someone who uh, couldn't have that happen to you, you wouldn't do it. The way a hypnotist works is he has a big audience, and he says, um, you, you, and you, and he points to three spots in the room, are feeling very sleepy and want to participate in my activity, right? And three people stand up. Those three people are the people in the audience who are most likely to be able to be hypnotized, right? And you wouldn't be one of them if you don't think you could be one of them. Uh, I, I thought it was fake, like wrestling. <laughs> it is. Um, it, well, in a way, it is. I mean, think of the way wrestlers think of what they're doing, right? If wrestlers are... I guess some of them really believe in it. If they're indignant as to... Uh, it's like um, you're in a play, right? You're you're a, a character in a play, um, and you're playing uh, Hamlet's father, the ghost, in Hamlet. Okay, and Hamlet says, "Oh my God, who's that at the end of the room?" And you say, "It's me. It's Tamahomi." <laughs> he would say, "No, no, no. You're not doing it right. You're not participating in the game properly, right?" Mm-hmm. And so we would say, "You're not able to be an actor." And so the people who who seem it's a very strange situation because it, it hypnotism does seem to be a real effect, but it's not what we think it is. And it's just like watching professional wrestling, as you were saying. The people are actually wrestling, but they're not wrestling uh, to win. They're wrestling to perform. So I was trying to figure out why it was in the story. And yeah. you're saying that you think it is because of 
having a model of someone who fills in their own gaps with things that are logical to them to make sense Absolutely. of something that happened. Absolutely. And, and also serves to, um, underscore what happens to, to the, the character, which is he has his, his will taken over, right? Just right. like the hypnotist takes over the will of the, the cousin, the Horla takes over the will of, uh, our main character. So do you think that some of the things that happen in the end, are things that he's doing. He hasn't necessarily been told to do them, but it's the only way he can make sense of it. Like I'm thinking of the fire, for instance. Yes. Because so obviously did he burn just... down his house or did the Horla burn down his house? Right. Uh, I would say that he, he burned down his house um, in uh, an attempt to defeat the Horla. Right. Because it didn't work. <laughs> no, he failed to. He, <laughs> He believes he failed to, and and not only that, he also killed all his servants, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a very noir ending. And the movie, the Horla is flammable and, and burns up and dies. Yeah, well, that's much right? more triumphant. <laughs> you've got to you've got to defeat evil. Um, if and in which case, um, I mean, it start the movie starts with a with a funeral scene, right? Mm-hmm. So we already know what's going to happen, um, but. The, the tension is whether the Horla was defeated or not. Right. And, uh, we, we get the sense that there's a, a serious problem here, but that's why I'm saying if there, if there ever was a sequel, it couldn't be with the same characters, right? <laughs> right. It would have to be some other part of the world that somebody else experienced the same thing. That's why there does, there's some. Son of the Horla. Son of the Horla. <laughs> Spawn of the Horla. Um. Well, I was worried I that there's whoever... a lot more science, science in here, skepticism and that sort of thing. Well, yeah. Yeah. Go go ahead. Talk. Oh well, I was just I the the whole hypnotism thing. I mm-hmm. hadn't really seen it in that perspective. I like that a lot, actually. I thought maybe it was just one more example of having some kind of proof or evidence that things he couldn't explain happened. Yeah. Just just so that it would open up his mind a little bit to being more receptive to the idea i thought maybe that was more because it happened pretty early in the yeah. story um yeah, about a third it has of the a way. good pattern actually <laughs> it's very nice it's very well put together and sort of we think he's he's solved his problems uh and then you know he goes back home and he's okay and then why doesn't it follow him to paris right why doesn't it go right. to rouen with him why doesn't it go to Saint, um, mont saint michel um it seems to be tied to the place. Uh, is that because it's not only, you know, making his life a misery, it's doing other stuff too? Well, it but, starts um, to affect his servant, right? Yeah. He starts having the same experiences. But you notice they don't actually talk about what's happening to themselves, just the physical manifestations of how they're feeling, because it must just be something you never talk about. <laughs> well, well, would you talk about well, it? Well, no, exactly. Yeah. So it could but, have been affecting everyone. Remember, there there was a scene between uh, we just get a diary entry where there's a the the servants are having a dispute uh, mm-hmm. about who broke all the drinking glasses in <laughs> in a cabinet, and they're saying it wasn't me, and the other one's saying, well, it wasn't me, right? <laughs> and then uh, at the end of that diary entry. Um, <laughs> The narrator says it would take a very clever man to figure out the answer to who, to who, uh, who, who broke the glasses. Hmm. 
And, of course, we know who blo- broke the glasses. It was not either of them individually, right? It was, it was the Horla. Um, and it was like as a, as a punishment or something, as some sort of acting out. It, it's very strange, but, um, it, it could be like if this was the, uh, you know, the Futurama version of a Twilight Zone episode, <laughs> it would be like a baby Horla because it was <laughs> acting out and was just angry, that sort of thing. But um, there was a line that I, 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 I wrote down um, that's near the end, and I think it's actually the same line that's used at the beginning of the movie. Um, talking, It's right from very near the end, I think. Um, and yeah, it's like sort of, yeah, it's really nice, and it sort of sums up the, the I would say, the, the science fiction, the uh, alien invasion sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so it goes like this. The vulture has eaten the dove. The wolf has eaten the lamb. The lion has devoured the sharp-horned buffalo. And man has killed the lion with arrow, sword, and gun. But the horla is going to make of man what we have made of horse and ox, his chattel, his servant, and his food, by the mere exercise of his will. Woe to us. (laughs) So that woe to us... It's not just woe to me, like my life is miserable. It's the Horla is is going to take over the world, is what I'm getting. And even if it is from, uh, not from, you know, outer space as it is, <clears throat> you know, it, it's it's uh, this is one of H.P. Lovecraft's favorite stories. Hmm. And, I was about to ask uh, that if uh, he was an influence on Lovecraft. Obviously, yeah, um, and he sort of thinks that this is a. Could be, uh, I know Jim Moon thinks that this could be a very well, you know, it could be read as almost a, uh, Lovecraftian Cthulhu Miso story. Sure. But he came first, right? Oh, way first, right? Uh, I, what is this, 1886? I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. Let's see. 1887. Yeah. I've uh, still never read any Lovecraft. Well, this is this is how Lovecraft. Said, oh, you should read some Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah you should. Are <laughs> um, you too? Here's here's a description uh, how Lovecraft describes it in a book. He says, relating the advent of in France of an invisible being who lives on waters and sorry water and milk, uh, sways the minds of others and seems to be the vanguard of a horde of extraterrestrial organisms arrived on Earth to subjugate and overwhelm mankind. This tense narrative is perhaps without peer in its particular department. And if you if you study, you know, H.P. Lovecraft for a while, you know, he is trying to creep you out, right? Uh, That's his whole thing. But he's not doing it in a fantasy genre. He's doing it in, for the most part, it's science fiction. It's just the, you know, what instead of using space spaceships, he's using like ancient organisms. And instead of using, um, you know, uh, oh, technology, not a god. He's a, like a yeah, he's being. he's an elder god, right? He's a creature from from the ancient deep time. Okay, sleeping, you know, at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. He's not a he's not a supernatural creature. Although, if there is such a thing as the supernatural, it would be uh, Cthulhu, I would guess. Is, I think that's the way um, uh, Lovecraft works. Is he's not really writing fantasy, even though it seems like it is, because he's sort of 
um, blown up what fantasy is, destroyed you know that, and then replaced it with with uh, his own genre of uh, I guess kind of uh, creepiness. Yeah, it's a, like a Lovecraftian universe. It's just full of deep, deep sadness for for all the mysteries that are hiding in the dangerous places. Well, and the reason it's not completely fantasy is because it's so plausible, almost the way he writes it. Like it, it would almost, it, it could almost happen <laughs> to well, you or near if, you. I mean, if 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 such things existed, absolutely. Right. But like, that's if the you, scary part of it. Yeah, like if you think of. Some of his stories, like um, one of my favorites, is called The Statement of Randolph Carter, right? Mm-hmm. And that one is much more traditionally um, horror fantasy-based. It's about a guy who goes down into a tomb uh, looking for God knows what um, and is killed by something at the bottom of a grave, right? Well, that sounds just like a horror story. But um, the way they do it, they use modern technology, right? They go down there. One guy goes down with a with a radio and the other guys at the top uh, with the radio and the guy at the bottom is describing what's happening to him as he's being digested or whatever's going on. (laughs) Yeah. It's really, really creepy story. Um, And then other ones like uh, at the mountains of madness, it's a scientific expedition, right? They, they're going to Antarctica looking for, uh, I don't know, to map it or something. And they brought a bunch of scientists and what they discover is like an ancient city full of, uh, elder beings or whatever. <laughs> it's it's definitely more science fiction than it is fantasy, I would say. But it's definitely horror on the same oh, sure. same token. I only know Lovecraft from it. Cthulhu's uh, guest appearance on South Park. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I saw that one. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> well, I, I I know a lot of people have Cthulhu plushies, which I think. Is it's like having a teddy bear. Uh, bears are actually quite scary and dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a little uh, soft object that isn't scary or dangerous, and that makes you feel better. <laughs> but about I think the people who like to have those those plush Cthulhu's are are actually you know quite quite afraid of Cthulhu himself. You have one of those, right, Jenny? <laughs> afraid not. <laughs> I must not nope. be afraid enough. No, I'm not. I'm I'm not quite afraid enough. Um, Just must mean I haven't read enough. <laughs> could be. Um, so, what else you got? What else do you guys think? Well, well, I was going to mention a couple more uh, sciencey or science fictiony things. Like, sure. He uh, wonders that there's more than four elements. Like, mm, yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. And then uh, he has an image of a space butterfly going between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was space cool. butterfly. Yeah, yeah, like a giant uh, planet-sized space butterfly. No. <laughs> it's funny Should because be. the the one quote that I'd pulled out from the end, it, it's probably mm-hmm. near the one you you mentioned, Jesse, but mm-hmm. it's kind of similar. Um, the we are so weak, so unarmed, so mm-hmm. ignorant, so small. We who live on this particle of mud, which turns round in a drop of water. Mm-hmm. That was my favorite. One. Yeah. <laughs> It, he has a real cosmic view, right? Yeah, definitely. A sort of a he doesn't he doesn't just take. He's like the guy who's out there. He's looking at the at the water during the day, and then at night he's looking at the stars. He's not looking, you know, at 
I don't know, the social social gossip going on. He's got a global, uh, not a global view. He's got a universal view. So whenever he gets philosophical, it's it's about how small. You know, he's got a sort of a um, the the view from the guy on that show Cosmos. Who, who's that guy? Science fiction writer. Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. He's got a sort of a, a Sagan-like billions view. Billions. That's right. Billions and billions of stars out there. There must be life out there, right? But he doesn't really have a solution for it, right? Like, it's just that humanity is doomed, basically. Yeah. Because <laughs> he, he, he tried to, remember, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't control himself when the Horla took him over. So he, he planned to get close enough to the Horla, and then when he's, he's able to get away, to try and subdue it, right? But it didn't work. His plan didn't work. Right. And, I mean, it's pretty hard to defeat an invisible enemy. You can't even measure measure its shape or, you know, what what, it, what other its powers are. But it can, it's, it's invisible and it can control your body. I think that's pretty hard to defeat. Well, and the, the movie had a good explanation from it. And I know it might not be from this story, but it's from the same author, right? What's that? <laughs> About how evil's everywhere and there's nothing, oh, yeah. you, there's nothing you can do, basically. So... <laughs> You must always yeah. be on guard for yes. people when they come around. That's, That's the ending. Right. Yeah. Which yeah, isn't a bad, a bad conclusion, I guess. It's a sort of a demonic possession story, mm-hmm. but where the demon isn't a demon. It's a, it's an alien. I think, I think we have to conclude it's an alien. Otherwise, it is, why didn't he just use a demon? Why didn't he just say demon? Right. Hey, hey maybe it's an allegory for like nature and science and the things that we can't understand yet. <laughs> Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, like, that's sort of the argument that people make when they, they talk about Frankenstein. There are things we ought, bet not, ought best not to do, right? Um, man, and I know when I took a university course about, about Frankenstein, um, the argument in, it was in the uh, women's studies department, uh, the argument was that men ought not meddle in uh, affairs normally... Uh, Normally deemed to women, right? Hmm. So, a Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein is giving birth to a, a, a creature and then he rejects it. And that's why, I mean, this is a traditional interpretation of what's going on in, in, uh, maybe not even interpret, interpretation. It's just what is going on in, in Frankenstein, hmm. right? Um, and thus we get the idea of a Frankensteinian mon- monster where People were studying things that were really God should have been only doing, and he was acting like a God, and so he shouldn't have done that. Um, and that's sort of a warning against science. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think um, Guy de Maupassant's more like um, science is our only way of understanding the universe at all. And yeah, and I think he's just curious about it. I'm not saying that he thinks uh, we shouldn't uh, progress. Yeah, but even he, I think there's a line when, near the beginning, he says, when, when we are, isn't it strange that when we're confronted by a situation that's inexplicable, we won't stop trying to explain it away? Mm-hmm. We don't just say, you know what, I don't know what is going on, because that is actually the best answer, right? Not to try to say, oh, it's the God, right? Because that used to be the way you solved everything. You just, you know, uh, why is the river, uh, doing that this year oh the gods are angry hmm. does that really solve it no but it 
satisfies us in a certain way. And so we're always looking for that satisfaction. He's saying we have one place to look, and that is the science. And when we don't look there, we our explanations are are not helpful. I I think that that's sort of the propaganda he's he's pushing. I think there's kind of two ways you can feel about it too. Like first, you have to get to the conclusion that there are things you can't explain. But he seems frustrated by it. I mean, the character in the story, not not the author necessarily, but the monk that he talks to mm-hmm. is at peace with it. He's yeah. already come to terms with, okay, well, that's just one of those things I can't explain. <laughs> right. It just goes over there because, you know, I only understand a hundredth of what I see. So, or the hundred, I think he says hundred thousandth. So. Yes. Yeah. There, you know, and he, he thinks of different organisms that might be able to perceive different things. And it all seems, you know, he's, 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 if he's not a scientist, I mean, we don't know what his career is in the, in the novel. True. Uh, sorry, the story. Uh, in the movie, he's a magistrate. Um, he's definitely wealthy. He's got servants. He can go on vacation quite a, quite often. He hangs out under trees all day long. <laughs> Maybe he is a scientist. That's, you know, scientists back then were, uh, often too much not free time. professionals, right? They were amateurs. People who, did it because they were interested. That's what a gentleman did. He needs to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He does spend a lot of time by himself, though. Yeah, he does. If he you does. exclude the servants as people, which you know back then. Yeah, that was. <laughs> well, you can't. You can't. Uh, you know, you can't be buddy buddy with your servants. Well, and at the beginning, he thought that that was the problem. He said that when you're alone, you fill the space with phantoms or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that'd but, be true. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know the the way this book has been uh, story this story has been anthologized. It's been in science fiction collections. It's been in horror collections, ghost collections. Hmm. It can sort of fit into any Mystery. genre. Yeah, it, it, yeah, absolutely. The ebook version that's on Wiki Source is from Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories. Oh, weird. Um, and. It's. I would say it's a detective story, and the, the main character is an amateur detective. Yeah. Uh, trying to figure out, you know, the case that's <laughs> the case of my body being haunted. <laughs> <laughs> is this before Conan Doyle? Yeah. Well, it's before um, before the Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Okay. But um, I know that th- there were, you know, Edgar Allan Poe did did detective before everybody else, basically. Okay. <laughs> And that's that's even before the Horla, but yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Guy de Maupassant based on just a couple of uh, three or four stories I've read. So yeah, I think I'll probably read more. Try and find more. How was a uh, Diary of a Madman? I haven't read that one. Okay, but it sounds it sounds interesting, right? It's about a magistrate who who uh, studies evil and and. Uh, it convicts happily convicts murderers of murders that he has committed. Except for now, when you read it, you'll just assume it was the Horla. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it could be the same universe. Maybe that. Maybe I haven't read it, so maybe it, it is. Uh, but yeah, does the Horla commit any murders other than the uh, the burning of the people? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the movie I, or the story. In the story, I think it just um, dominates him, yeah. controls him, uh, take, sort of takes over his body and makes him do what it wants. 
Um, and then it, punish- it seems sort of spiteful and punish- punishing him. Right. It's almost just because it can. Well, I'm not sure. It's like, because he is trying to, uh, he is trying to fight against it, right? Right. And it'd be like, uh, you know, uh, a horse that doesn't want to do the plowing. Mm-hmm. You it, would, uh, want to oh, punish it. What does the alien want? Take over. <laughs> um, it wants to make a servant of man, right? Oh, turn us into batteries. <laughs> Worst movie ever. It's okay. funny, you know, I think he was more afraid of it before it talked to him. You know? And then did it, it talked w- to him in the book? Did this talk in the book? Well, because of the whole mirror it thing. It says the Horla. It definitely says the Horla. Yeah. I think it's at the first, when he's kind of mocking him with the mirror part. That's yeah. the first yeah. time. Yeah. It sort of, it doesn't speak aloud like it does in the movie. Right. I think it it's just in his, his mind. Or in his makes, mind. maybe it makes his mouth move and talk to him. <laughs> Now, there was uh, one, going back to that scene with the hypnotism, um, right before the post-hypnotic suggestion, um, there's a little interesting scene where uh, our main character is sitting behind his cousin, and the cousin is facing the hypnotist, and the hypnotist holds up a white card. Do you remember that? Hmm. I guess I'll not. I'll see if I can find it in the story. Oh, and... Uh, she- she treats it like a mirror, and she can see behind herself. Yeah, that's right. Um, and how can that be possible? Well, that's the thing is is it's it sort of doesn't fit with everything else. But I, I think there's probably an explanation. Um, let's see if we can get the mirror. Let's see if we can. No, that didn't work. Try card. Um, yeah. Go behind her, the doctor said to me, so I took a seat behind her. He put a visiting card into her hand and said to her, This is a looking glass. What do you see in it? She replied, I see my cousin. What is he doing? He is twisting his mustache. And now he is taking a photograph out of his pocket. Whose photograph is it? His own. And I was I was thinking that this is uh foreshadowing. Hmm. In a way, because it's 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 got the out of body experience, right? Um, she's got an out of body experience, but she also has um, uh, she is also under the will of someone else. That's he's true. hypnotized her in this in this situation. So, he's, in a way, he's looking through her eyes, or she's looking through his eyes. Is I think what we're supposed to interpret, um, and then. He says, that was true. The photograph had been given me the same evening at the hotel. What is his attitude in this portrait? He is standing up with his hat in his hand. Saw. So she's she possessing saw. him. Uh, well, I don't think so. <laughs> she saw these things in that card, in that piece of white pasteboard, as if she had seen them in a looking, gra- in a looking glass. The woman the young woman were frightened and exclaimed, that is quite enough, quite quite enough. Mm-hmm. But the doctor said, you will get up at 8 o'clock tomorrow. Right. And he gave her the post-hypnotic suggestion. Yeah, that seems the unbelievable part. Yes, but uh, what? Uh, given the lesson we were supposed to be given earlier, <laughs> what are you supposed to conclude? Uh, <laughs> is it a fantasy? <laughs> no. You're supposed to Reserve judgment. Okay. Right? Well, the lesson we're, we got early on is when you don't know, 
don't conclude. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't conclude. So I don't know how how this is supposed to happen, and I don't know if this is, uh, you know, is Guy de Maupassant relating an exact experience that he had? Because I'm sure he had some experience with hypnotists, right? Mm-hmm. Seems sure. very likely. He's a famous writer and lives in, you know, France where there's lots of hypnotism going on. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, it seems likely that he would have had experience with hypnotism. Um, but what are we to conclude? Nothing, I think, is the right answer. Something weird is going on. There is a quasi-phenomenon um, that's fairly inexplicable, right? Well, if you saw that in real life, it was a magician doing something. Uh, well, I mean, there, we could come up with dozens of explanations, but if we conclude which one is correct, um, then we are not playing the game that he has intended, intended us to play. We we are not supposed to say we know the answer because if you do you're lying, and you don't want to lie to yourself because that's confabulation. That's exactly what she does, right? When she doesn't know why she needs to get this money, she makes it up and tells herself something that is a lie, but she believes, and we shouldn't do that. <laughs> I, and I think that's it, it's it's kind of like a. Um, He's. This is definitely a science fiction story because he's trying to make it about science, and it just happens to be about fiction, right? Because <laughs> if you do that, you're not a scientist. You make stuff up. We should just I, be I comfortable know. with not knowing. We have to. We have to get like that monk to yep. become more comfortable with not be knowing. Be the monk. <laughs> and and well and and happily <laughs> relate the the story as best you heard it, and then try and figure out. Uh, what what experiments you could do, right? Just like our main character does. He does experiments to try and figure out what's going on. You know, the funny thing about the hypnotism thing is that most of the time that kind of stuff would be for show. Mm-hmm. But the proof of it doesn't happen until later when it's just the the author and his cousin. That's true. Which I, That's true. I thought was strange. <laughs> So it was like it was uh, all just for him instead of... Yeah, like, it's all just show. for us. It's all just for us and right. the audience, right? The readers. Hmm. Um, that's true. I'm I'm a big fan of this story. Yeah. And I, I just can't believe how, how much is in it compared to how short it is. Mm-hmm. So he's one of the inventors of the short story, so to speak. Yeah. Him I, and I, Edgar Allan Poe. I do believe that to be the case. I think Wikipedia said that. That sounds right. <laughs> He's certainly uh, one of the masters of it. Oh, yeah. Um, I was going to tell this. Uh, Har- Harvey Keitel was on Inside the Actor's Studio. Oh, yeah. And he told the story about when he was in the Army, the sergeant would turn out the lights, and he would say, this is where you have to become comfortable. And then he took that lesson into acting after that. Huh. Okay. So I was relating that to... Maybe we should be comfortable with the unknown until we find the right answer. Yeah, that sounds right. Absolutely. When did you see that? Um, year, years ago. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah, he was a good uh, interview. He's, a, he's an interesting actor and been in a ton of movies. Mm-hmm. And not really been the lead in very many of them. Yeah, he's con- he seems to be comfortable being the character actor and not the lead actor. Uh, you know, the, there's probably the Guy de Maupassant story that you guys have read. This is one that everybody reads in school, I think. It's called The Necklace. It's a, it's a, 
That's him, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of, it feels like a, um, uh, it feels like a, an old Henry style story, except a kind of depressing one. Or Fitzgerald. Yeah, F. Scott Fitzgerald. I would have thought it was, yeah, in my head, I think I associate it with him. What's the plot of that? Is the necklace stolen? No, what it is, is there's a young woman in France, of course, who is married to a young man, uh, in France who's a bureaucrat. But she is very beautiful, and she believes that she is married below her station. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, she thinks she deserves a richer man, <laughs> or a more handsome man, or something like that. Um, and though they live their happy lives, um, it is not one of luxury that she thinks she deserves. So uh, when her husband comes home uh, as a bureaucrat and says that he has been lucky enough to, to get uh, an invitation to the governmental ball or whatever she says this is wonderful but i can't go and she starts crying and he says why why not and he says because i've i i've no dress to wear she says and so he says well okay uh you could have this money i was planning on buying a gun with but here you can have this and she goes and gets a dress right and then they're planning to go and then she starts crying again saying now i have no nothing to wear no piece of jewelry. And um, I think the husband suggests it, uh, that uh, she ask her wealthy friend, who is less attractive than her, <laughs> um, to uh, ask to borrow a, ne- a necklace from her wealthy friend from years ago. So she borrows it. Um, and on the way home from the ball, where they had a wonderful time, the necklace goes missing. And they can't find it. And it was a diamond necklace with thousands and thousands of francs. Um, and they are freaking out. And so she decides to uh, get her husband to get his, a loan to buy a new one that's identical and replace it. And so she takes... I'm giving you the whole story here. <laughs> she, takes, she takes the um, the, the money from the... Uh, from the debts that he's accrued to pay for it, buys the necklace, um, and returns it to the, the friend. Years later, 20 years later, or whatever it is, after they've just about finished paying off all the debts, and they've, you know, driven themselves into poverty after having, you know, a few servants in the house, now they have no servants, she does all the work, and she's years older uh, looking than she should be. Uh, she meets again on, on the street, her friend, by accident, who she's lost contact with, and says, I want to tell you about something that happened 20 years ago. It was terrible. I lost your necklace. And the woman, uh, the friend says, oh, oh, I didn't know that. I'm sorry to hear that. What? Well, what? But you gave it back to me. I said, well, we replaced it. It cost us so much time and effort, and we lost all this money, but we we finally just about finished repaying it. And the friend is like a little bit scared looking and confused and says, you know, my dear, that it was just paste. It was not a real uh-huh. necklace. And it's like, oh, snap, right? It's a whole life wasted. It's and she's like her. a really negative O. Henry story. I think the title rings a bell. I might have had that in high school. Yeah, it's sort of a high school level story. It's quite short and uh, it's got that twist that makes you become upset. Uh, it says Somerset Mom uh, and Henry James both did a version of that story as well. 
Hmm. I wonder which one I actually read. <laughs> uh, Mr. Know-It-All and A String of Beads are the two stories. Oh, I think A String of Beads is what I read. That sounds more the familiar. Henry James, yeah. Mm-hmm. That would probably be uh, Pearls then, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to try and get another Montpassant on the schedule, and we'll try and get Jim Moon in. Oh, good. To uh, help us with it. May we? (laughs) (laughs) This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.